and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Fernita Tolson, Professor of Law and Vice Dean of Faculty in Academic Affairs as of July 1 at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. We will discuss her article, The Spectrum of Congressional Authority Over Elections, which is published in the Boston University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Fernita. Thank you for having me. Uh, The pleasure is all mine. Um, I really enjoyed your paper, which is a fascinating discussion of both kind of constitutional authority of Congress more generally, but also its specific application in the context of of election law. So I, I, I wonder if you could talk about the scope of congressional authority to regulate based on kind of constitutional uh, authorization, uh, in particular when there's one substantive constitutional provision versus multiple uh, constitutional provisions authorizing congressional action. What's the difference there? How should we think about those two situations differently? Well, I think that with respect to um, most federal laws, um, the court often looks for a source of authority um, and really just one source, right? It's something authorized under the Commerce Clause, um, if some, it's something authorized under the spending power and so on. And in those situations, um, you tend to have, you know, pretty straightforward analysis about the constitutionality of a particular federal provision. Um, what prompted this paper was the fact that in the context of elections, um, the, the delegation of authority between the Congress and the states is a little unusual um, as compared to other areas. So um, the elections clause gives Congress control over um, the, uh, it gives states the authority to set the times, places, and manner of federal elections, but it's subject to Congress's uh, decision not to make or alter those regulations. So effectively, the election clause gives Congress what is uh, uh, a, a, essentially a veto power over state electoral regulations. Uh, in contrast, states have control under Article One, Section 2 to set voter qualifications for federal elections. And so um, because of this unusual structure where essentially Congress can intervene um, at will with respect to time, place, and manner regulations, but it's much more limited with respect to voter qualifications. And in fact, um, we've had to have, we have had to have subsequent constitutional amendments to enlarge this power. So um, the 14th and 15th Amendments gives Congress the power to intervene where the right to vote is being abridged or if uh, racial discrimination in voting is at issue. Uh, But essentially, Congress's power to regulate voter qualifications is much more limited than its power to regulate the procedure of federal elections. Um, Mm. And so I think that structure um, raised some really interesting questions about um, what do you do in a situation where you have a regulation, a federal law that implicates both the manner of um, federal elections and voter qualification standards? Is Congress's power... Um, broader in those circumstances? Um, Is it a situation in which the court is willing to um, view the legislative record underlying the uh, law more favorably if um, Congress is authorized to act pursuant to both the elections clause and the 14th and 15th amendments, even if they are um, sort of sweeping in state laws that are otherwise unproblematic? Uh, Mm. And probably the most famous example of this is the Voting Rights Act, because Mm -hmm. the Voting Rights Act required um, states to uh, certain jurisdictions, certain states to pre-clear any changes to their election laws, including laws that uh, regulated federal elections, state elections, dealt with voter qualifications, dealt with the manner 
of federal elections, dealt with the times and places of federal elections, any law. Um, and all of these laws did not necessarily, all of the laws did not necessarily implicate racial discrimination. Um, and, and some of the laws were constitutional, yet they were suspended under the Voting Rights Act. And so I think when you have a situation like that, it raises important questions about the scope of federal power and how the court should view the underlying legislative record. So it sounds like in the election law context, we've got a situation where multiple constitutional provisions authorize congressional regulation or preemption or action of one kind or another. And the question is, how should those kind of overlapping authorizations affect the way that courts evaluate the legitimacy of congressional action? I wonder if you have any like kind of general thoughts on that before we talk more specifically about uh, election law uh, in particular. Like, I mean, should we look at that as sort of just expanding the areas in which Congress should act or strengthening the power of congressional authority, some combination of the two, something else entirely? Like, does it depend on the context? Like any any general thoughts about sort of like when those questions come up, what should we do with that? The paper makes a very, um, what I view as a conservative proposal. Uh, It doesn't necessarily read as conservative, but I think in a broad scheme of things, it's conservative. Um, Because (laughs) I I view it as a a question of deference. The question is, how much should the court defer to the legislative record when Congress acts pursuant to multiple sources of authority? Um, And so when it's framed that way, it sounds better than saying, you know, the court should just uphold anything Congress does whenever Congress acts pursuant to multiple choices of multiple sources of authority. That's not what I'm saying. Um, instead, I'm trying to inform, really, I'm, I'm trying to inform a discussion that uh, occurs under the court's jurisprudence, uh, line of cases stemming from City of Bernie versus Flores. Um, so in City of Bernie, the court um, said that anytime Congress acts pursuant to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, the remedy has to be congruent and proportional to the harm that Congress is trying to address. Um, But in cases subsequent to City of Bernie, the court has been uh, very uneven in how it applies that standard. Um, And mostly it's because congruence and proportionality is completely context driven. Um, We don't have really any objective sense of what congruence and proportionality means. Um, And so the paper is an attempt to uh, provide more sort of guidance in that context and using election law as as the lens for having that conversation because um, election law does present this issue in pretty stark fashion, right? When is a remedy congruent and proportional? Well, if Congress is acting pursuant to multiple sources of authority, the court should sort of view that in the aggregate and it should inform whether or not a remedy is congruent and proportional. Um, to me, that is uh, that means that federal power is much more justifiable than when Congress is acting pursuant to only one source of authority. Um, mm. and, and, and this is true even if you have to sort of piece together um, the powers in order to 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 provide complete authorization. Um, I don't view that as uh, necessarily detrimental to uh, the exercise of federal power here. Instead, what it says is that sometimes things are complicated. Um, and, and we really see that in elections when we try to sort of define what a manner regulation is, right? Is, for example, a voter identification law, a manner regulation such that Congress can regulate and, and require voter identification laws or prevent states from enacting voter identification laws? Or is it a voter qualification standard that falls with under the auspices of state power? Right. Mm-hmm. So to me, those are very difficult questions. Um, and so if Congress passes a law that um, 
sort of bears on uh, voter identification laws. Instead of trying to draw this firm boundary between manner regulation and voter qualification standard, view congressional power in the aggregate, right? Look at the record and let that influence whether or not the remedy is congruent and proportional. Mm-hmm. So in your in your paper, you provide a really fascinating and pretty comprehensive discussion of sort of the history of uh, Supreme Court intervention in in the election law context in relation to congressional authority. I wonder if you could pick out like some illustrative examples of where the court has done that and sort of how the action relates to the observations you're making about this overlapping authority. Like has the court tended to kind of quote, get it right, or have they made mistakes to your mind in in thinking about how the overlapping authority affects the scope and strength of congressional authority? Oh, the court has gotten it wrong. Oh, they have really <laughs> gotten it wrong. <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, so I'm sure many of your listeners uh, know about Shelby County. Um, and I and I sort of use that as my jumping off point for uh, thinking about the court's missteps in this area. Um, in Shelby County, the court was laser focused on um, is has Congress built a record of intentional discrimination, right? And and they and they really felt like this is important for sort of uh, defending the v- the Voting Rights Act's incursion on uh, federalism, right? If if Congress has built this record, right, then we are okay with what the Voting Rights Act has done. Um, but but the reality of the situation is that that view is too narrow, right? Because the Voting Rights Act is not only a law that implicates the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, but also the elections clause. An elections clause does not have or does not really trigger the same federalism concerns as the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, and I, in your, your first question, I talked in response to your first question, I talked about how the elections clause is different from the 14th and 15th Amendments, in part because it gives Congress this veto authority. Right. So Congress, not the states, have the final say in the context of the elections clause. Right. That is very different from our traditional understanding of federalism, where we think about it as, um, you know, the two sovereigns sort of operating in their own space and being sovereign in their own space. Um, The elections clause is about congressional sovereignty. Um, And so because of that, that really complicates the analysis as to whether or not the Voting Rights Act is a legitimate exercise of congressional authority. And if you just treat it as an exercise of authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments, then that um, is, you know, wrong as a practical matter, because it's also it also could be justified under the Elections Clause, where the federalism calculus is much different than the, the Reconstruction Amendments. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what was at stake in Shelby County and how the Supreme Court got to your mind, the outcome wrong in relation to the elections clause, as opposed to its interpretation of, I think it's what sections four B and five, or sorry, the the, the section of the Fourteenth Amendment. Right. Um, so, uh, what was at stake was the stakes were enormous. I think for a long time, voting rights advocates and um, and scholars have been sort of this. It was the day we all feared. <laughs> when this decision came out, uh, Shelby County invalidated sections four B and five of the Voting Rights Act, which um, the preclearance provisions are really the most successful civil rights uh, provisions uh, in history. 
you know, I, I mean, they by suspending. So, so what the provisions did essentially was that they suspended voting laws across uh, most of the southern states, right? States that had a history of discriminating on the basis of race. Um, and the preclearance provisions came up with this complicated uh, coverage formula that required any jurisdiction that had uh, less than 50% voter turnout in certain elections in the 1960s um, to um, to have to pre-clear any changes to their election laws with the federal government before those changes could go into effect. Um, another uh, part, and I want to mention this because I think this gets lost in the discussion, um, the Voting Rights Act also allowed jurisdictions who were once covered to bail out um, once they established that they had a record of not discriminating on the basis of race. Um, and the reason I want to mention that is because I think that that gets lost in terms of thinking about whether or not the Voting Rights Act was an appropriate use of congressional authority. Because in Shelby County, the court focused mostly on the fact that um, the Voting Rights Act required some states, but not others, and others being states in the North who were bad actors as well, right, who might have terrible records on on voting rights. To, to They required the Southern states, though, to pre-clear, and this violated the Constitutional's the Constitution's principle of equal sovereignty, um, which means that Congress cannot distinguish between the sovereign states unless Congress has a really good reason. Um, And for the court, the record wasn't there to support that reason. Um, Among the things that the court pointed to was the fact that um, African-Americans in the South were much more, much uh, better off now than they had been in the past, right? Voter turnout was up, voter voter registration was up and and had parity with the voter registration of, of whites. And so, all of these things seem to suggest that we live in a post-racial time where we don't need um, this this remedy that really uh, offended the sovereignty of the states. Um, so, you know, the court focused on what it viewed uh, as the substantial cost, federalism cost imposed by the Voting Rights Act. Um, and they ignored a lot of the evidence that suggested that the Voting Rights Act was still needed. The, the, these preclearance provisions were still needed. As a matter of fact, you know, Texas is kind of the poster child in the post-Shelby era for a state that still needs to be covered. They are consistently sued for um, their redistricting plans and for their voter ID laws. And and not only just, not only sued, but lower courts have found that they've acted with discriminatory intent. And so the suggestion that um, the preclearance provisions are no longer needed or that we live in this post-racial time is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had no idea that there was a way for states or jurisdictions within states to um to kind of qualify to no longer be subject to these preclearance provisions um how many were able to qualify for that and does the you know the number or uh, number who did or didn't qualify tell us anything about you know how important maintaining the preclearance provisions might be um not many bailed out because not many tried to bail out And I think it's more so a testament to the fact that preclearance had become kind of pro forma over time, where states would, you know, just file the paperwork with the DOJ, the DOJ would would preclear or jurisdictions or cover jurisdictions. So it wasn't the, the bad actors tend to get the most attention. Right. The states that consistently engage in uh, sort of changes to their laws that um, the DOJ later finds to be discriminatory, either in intent or effect. Um, those jurisdictions are the ones that can't bail out. And they also are the jurisdictions that tend to challenge the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act and the constitutionality of continued coverage. Um, So that provision was there, um, but 
the jurisdictions that uh, are engaged in the most flagrant abuses uh, wouldn't have qualified to, to bail out. Mm-hmm. So t- to your mind, um, how should the Supreme Court have thought about uh, Section 4B and 5, the preclearance provisions and so on of the Voting Rights Act in relation to congressional authority under these kind of multiple headings, um, in particular, the elections clause, which it sounds like the Supreme Court in Shelby County was not really considering at all in the context of what the appropriate outcome was. So before I sort of launch into that answer, can I just make a plea for transparency? Sure, of (laughs) of course. One of the problems with Shelby County was a lack of transparency, right? So even after the case, you know, we have no sense of what the standard is that the court applies to sort of assess um, exercises of congressional power under Section 2 of the 15th Amendment, right? We know congruence and proportionality applies to the 14th. We still don't know if it applies to the 15th. Right. And so that alone makes it difficult to figure out a path forward when we're sort of thinking through what can replace the preclearance provisions. So, you know, the first thing is transparency. Right. Just be transparent about what the standard is and what Congress needs to do. Um, But the second thing is to think about um, congressional power in the aggregate. Right. So think about all of the provisions that could could potentially uh, justify any federal action. Um, the proposal that I make here is not um, that novel uh, in a sense of the court has been willing to do that in the past, right? So uh, in the 1960s, during the Warren Court era, you had a series of cases where the court, um, you know, will was willing to sort of look at congressional power in the aggregate, aggregate and thinking about, um, for example, Section 4E of the Voting Rights Act, which applied to um, a literacy requirement for uh, a, which uh, prohibited literacy requirements for uh, voters uh, from Puerto Rico, right? And so in that in that decision, the court talked about um, the the range of provisions that Congress could have relied on in sort of justifying the constitutionality of Section 4E. Um, so it's not as if I'm proposing something that's outside of the mainstream, right? It's just about whether or not the court is willing to look at congressional power in the aggregate. So had they done that in Shelby County, right, had they said, you know what, the 14th and 15th Amendments could justify the Voting Rights Act, the elections clause could as well, I think you would have had a different outcome. Because Mm. I think if you look at sort of the power, I mean, the elections clause is an incredibly powerful provision that has been underutilized, right? You don't have a ton of case Mm -hmm. law on it. Um, It's gotten quite a bit of attention recently. But as a general matter, not nearly the same amount of attention as the 14th and 15th Amendments, right? But um, and the power there should not be understated. And I think had the court considered the fact that the elections clause um, mattered to the calculus of whether or not of whether or not the uh, the Voting Rights Act was constitutional, you may have had a different outcome there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a general matter, uh, we I would have even if the court found came to the, the exact same outcome as a general matter, I would have appreciated some clarity. Yeah. Yeah. So to to your mind, like how, how would that work specifically in relation to the elections clause? Like would the elections clause provide like a separate basis or separate theory of justification of congressional authority, or would it be like complementary to the 14th amendment in some way, sort of bolstering the 14th amendment authority? So the paper treats it as complementary. 
right? My argument is not that the elections clause alone is enough to sustain the Voting Rights Act, right? But to the extent that the court had questions about the fact that the Voting Rights Act reached um, sort of, you know, laws that were not clearly matter regulations, but not clearly clearly voter qualification standards. Um, and the fact that the, the, the voter, Voting Rights Act reached laws that um, were not necessarily racially discriminatory, right? So there were some questions about the scope and breadth of the Voting Rights Act. Now, in the past, the court has been willing to sort of recognize that sometimes you're going to sweep constitutional behavior into a law in order to get at unconstitutional conduct, right? But it seems like the court is backing away from that. Um, and so to the extent that there are questions about the scope of federal power, that the baseline is broader, right? So it's not just about using the 14th and 15th Amendments and then saying, okay, we're going to capture some un- some constitutional behavior as we attempt to remedy unconstitutional behavior. Rather, it's saying we're also here, we're, we're actually starting from the 14th, 15th Amendments and the Elections Clause. And therefore, it is less problematic that we're sweeping in some constitutional behavior. Right. Because Congress actually has broader authority to act mm. in the first instance. Um, so essentially, I'm trying to change the baseline. Right. Where, and I'm trying to force the court to think about congressional power more broadly um, so that they they won't jump to the assumption that this is such an intrusion on federalism. Um, it's not. Mm, mm, mm. So, I mean, essentially, it seems like the election clause itself has a sort of built in like federalism is not being offended here assumption. Yes, correct. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, like if the court were to look at the 14th Amendment and the elections clause as kind of complementary in the way you describe which, which sounds very reasonable to me. Um, like, what do you think that would look like going forward in relation to sort of pending election law related disputes? I mean, would it have effects on, I mean, I assume it would have effects on future issues relating to things like voting registration and so on. Might it have effects in other areas of election law, like, like re, like, uh, like redistribution or, um, you know, gerrymandering type issues or, or anything like that? Um, hmm. Not necessarily, right? Because my focus is on when Congress passes federal legislation. Um, so I think, well, that's not true. So if, if section two, so if, if, okay. So if, if plaintiffs, if plaintiffs bring litigation under section two of the Voting Rights Act, challenging a gerrymander, that's a racial gerrymander that has partisan implications. Mm. I can see my analysis having some implications for that. Because Section 2 would reach behavior that has, you know, a discriminatory effect. It reaches vote dilution, right? So there are some questions, especially post-Shelby County, about the constitutionality of Section 2 and whether or not it can can be sustained um, based on, you know, the record that existed in 1982. And if we still live sort of in the circumstances that justified the the change in 82 to an effects-based regime. Um, so in 1982, Section 2 moved to an effects-based regime. And so there are questions, especially since the constitutional standard is intentional discrimination, right? So um, there are questions about the constitutionality of Section 2 in light of the fact that it imposes liability for effect. And so if you if you think about this aggregation approach, uh, this aggregation approach could potentially have some implications for 
Section 2 if we're, if we're thinking about congressional power more broadly. But partisan gerrymandering directly, um, I think that's a harder question because really I'm focused on when Congress acts pursuant to um, its sources of authority as opposed to when you know plaintiffs are challenging a partisan gerrymander as unconstitutional. Right, right. So it sounds like it would it would go really directly to circumstances where maybe states are trying to set up like requirements for voting, maybe like voter registration requirements or something like that. Voter registration is actually a big one. Um, so voter registration uh, in a, a recent case, Arizona Intertribal, um, the Supreme Court upheld uh, the National Voter Registration Act, which required states to um, to register individuals to, to vote in federal elections. But those individuals, they only had to affirm their citizenship. They did not have to pr- provide documentary proof of citizenship. But there was a contrary Arizona law that required that individuals show documentary proof of uh, citizenship. And so there was a conflict between state and federal law. And in an opinion written by Justice Scalia, believe it or not, um, the court upheld uh, a portion of the National Voter Registration Act that uh, allow individuals to register just by affirming their citizenship. But the interesting thing is a dissent written by Justice Thomas, which suggested that um, voter registration was fell with the auspices of state power because states have control over voter qualifications. And so when we allow the federal government to control voter registration, it necessarily interferes with a state's ability to verify that their voter qualifications are met. Um, and so I, I do think it's, it's one of the prime examples of a situation in which it's not clear if something is a manner regulation or if something is a voter qualification standard, because the majority arguably was screening voter registration as a manner regulation consistent with precedent, whereas Justice Thomas is saying the precedent is wrong. Mm, mm, mm. Well, Fernita, in, in, in closing, I, I, I can definitely see how your kind of big picture observation about the interaction of different constitutional provisions granting congressional authority to regulate in various areas sort of ought to affect the way we think about the scope and strength of of that authority in relation to election law. Um, but it, I couldn't help but but think that like you know. It, it, it's not common, but it's also not unique to election law to kind of see this overlapping authority. So like, for example, I do a lot of work in intellectual property and we've got like an intellectual property clause, but in a lot of ways it arguably overlaps with the commerce clause as well as probably so many other things do. I I wonder if you kind of have any thoughts about how the observation you're making in election law context might have implications about kind of congressional constitutional authority in in other areas of law? Um, this is definitely not a problem that's unique to um, to election law. For example, in the course of writing this paper, I ran across a few articles that talk about um, sort of combining constitutional analysis. Um, Michael Conan, from, he's a law professor at, uh, he's at in Louisiana, but he wrote a great article about uh, what he calls combination analysis, right? Which talks about how um, he talks about laws that are uh, relevant to multiple sources of constitutional authority and how the court should view them. Um, and he tries to determine whether or not um, the, the, the fact that a, a law implicates more than one area, it, whether or not it's been germane to the outcome. Um, also, Scott Howe has written about this, and he talks about it in the context of recreational marijuana use. 
so this is definitely not something that is unique to election law. Um, and in fact, it comes up because, um, number one, Congress does not ar- always articulate the source of authority pursuant to which it is acting, right? So that forces the court uh, by necessity to try to sort of infer what constitutional provisions are relevant. Um, but also, um, second, um, the court has used this approach in the past, which is something I alluded to in one of uh, the earlier questions. So McCulloch versus Maryland is a very famous example of the court, you know, using multiple sources of authority and justifying the Bank of the United States, right? Uh, the legal tender cases are are another uh, example in which the court has done the same with respect to paper money. So um, I, I do think that, and, and, it, and arguably neither of those cases deal with election law, right? So this is, is the analysis here, and let me just use this as an opportunity to make a plug for my book project that's coming out next year. It's called In Congress We Trust, The Evolution of Federal Voting Power from the Founding to the Present. Um, That book, it it focuses on election law, but the uh, insights definitely apply beyond election law because it really tries to create a framework for thinking through this issue of uh, multiple sources of of congressional power and how the court should view the underlying legislative record in light of how uh, federal power over voting has evolved since the founding. Um, and so I think that uh, when people read the book, they'll be able to see that it applies beyond election law. Awesome. Well, Fernita, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, like I said, I really enjoyed your paper. I look forward to your book. And I hope when the book comes out, you'll come back on the show to talk about that as well. Of course. Happy to come back. Thank you so much. This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand. On Tuesday, November 4th, you and I will vote to help decide who should be president. For all our sakes, I urge you to go to the polls. I sincerely hope you will vote for me, but most of all, I hope you will vote. Thank you for giving me this time.